If you have a copy of Scripture this morning, we are in Matthew chapter 28. Gospel of Matthew chapter 28. Matthew is in the New Testament, the first book of the New Testament. Matthew. So it would be in the latter part of your Bible. And chapter 28 is the last chapter of the book of Matthew. Matthew 28. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 15 of Matthew chapter 28. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning, Matthew 28, 1 through 15. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, There was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you see Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he has risen, as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away, while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. And so they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. May God bless the reading of his words this morning. Let's bow for a time of prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your word. It's faithful. It is true. God, I pray that as we examine the scriptures today as we examine the risen Christ. May we see the evidence. May we understand that we worship a risen Savior who indeed is coming again. Thank you that he is risen from the grave. Thank you that all of Christianity is based upon that one fact. That he is risen. Without the resurrection, there is no such thing as Christianity. God, I pray that as we look at your word, it would be revealed to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, we live in a day when the Christian faith is simply a preference or it's an option. In fact, many would say that all Religions are the same. 
They only have superficial differences to them. So all one has to do is figure out which religion works best for them. It doesn't matter which one is true because it only matters what is true for you because truth, after all, is relative. However, to live one's life pretending like there is no real truth will in the end be a costly mistake. Belief is empty if it's not based in truth. We like to say things like this, what is true for you may not be true for me. And we say that because, well, it sounds good. But we don't really believe that. For example, let's say that I feel like what is yours is mine. And so I go into your house and I take your stuff and I gain access to your bank account and I spend your money and I get the keys to your car and I drive it around. After all, I feel what is yours is mine. That is my reality. That is my truth. Well, I think you'd probably have a problem with that. It doesn't matter how I feel. My truth and your truth are going to be on a collision course. And one of them is really true, and the other is not true. The last thing we need is for this world to run on feelings, and what people feel is true. In fact, that is why, we are at, why we're at where we are in society today. Many of the problems we see today stem from the fact that we operate not based upon truth, but based upon what we feel is true. Not based upon something that can be proven, but based upon feelings. Well, I feel this is true, therefore this is how I will operate. This is why in everyday life, we typically try to operate on what we know is true instead of feelings and preference. The philosopher and broad, broadcaster, Professor C.E.M. Jode, was once asked this, who of all past figures in history he would most like to have met? And what question he would most have liked to ask this person? He chose Jesus Christ. He wanted to ask him the most important question in the world. Did you or did you not rise from the dead? And that's the issue in Matthew's gospel. You can almost overhear the debate in the undertones of this chapter. It was the critical issue of the day. Matthew is writing to the Jewish people. Indeed, it was almost the only issue of the day, separating Christians from Jews in first century AD. When faced by the, by the story of the resurrection of Jesus, the first question that crosses our mind when we think of the resurrection is this, is it true? People don't just rise from the dead, or do they? The resurrection accounts of Jesus concerned a man they all knew. He was executed in a public manner for everyone to see. He was then seen alive and well, but something was different about him. And he was here on the earth for six weeks after his public death. There is nothing comparable to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in all of the history of the world. And Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead then we are wasting our time as Christians and our faith is a lie and we are fools playing some sort of sick game 
The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, that if the resurrection is not true, we are pitied more than anyone. Jesus came and lived a sinless life. He died a criminal's death. And he rose again. He faced and conquered sin. And the resurrection is proof that God's wrath was vindicated. Is it true? Matthew says, yeah, this is true. Matthew says he is risen. This morning, I want us to see that indeed he is risen. But the first thing I want us to see as we unpack this passage of scripture is this. First of all, I want us to see an empty tomb. Verse 1 says, we see these women, they went to the tomb, and they knew where the tomb of Jesus was, as we'll look at in greater detail shortly. Anyways, they went to the tomb, and now now skip down to verse 6 as we read through this. The angel states to the women that he is not here, he is risen as he said, and then he invites them to come in and see where Jesus lay where he used to lay he's not there anymore and so they are invited into the tomb to see where he used to be and then they are told to go and tell the disciples what are they supposed to tell the disciples according to this that he is risen that Jesus is risen from the dead and that he's going to Galilee and you will see him there and um, just in case we're confused they're also supposed to say I told you so Right? It doesn't say that, but it does say, just as I told you. And so we like to say that sometimes. I told you so. Because Jesus had told them over and over and over and over and over again that his mission was to come and die and that he would raise again. But they didn't believe it. He died and they still didn't believe he would resurrect. And so they're supposed to say, just as he said he would do. Fast forward down to verse 9. We read the women see Jesus. And what do they do when they see Jesus? They worship Jesus. It says they cling to his feet in an act of worship. Does Jesus ignore their worship? He receives their worship. This is the first act of worship of the resurrected Christ that we find in Scripture. He receives their worship because he is deity. Have you ever wondered why the church gathers on Sunday for worship? Have you ever wondered why? Why is it that the church, why did they pick Sunday? Were they just like, hey, let's just start going to Sunday at some point in history? Well, before I get into some of the explanation of the resurrection, I want us to also notice not only that empty tomb, but why we worship on Sunday. Verse 1 says, now after the Sabbath, towards the dawn of the first day of the week. This is the foundation for the Christian church. And this is why we worship on the first day of the week and why we see throughout the scriptures that the church is gathering on the first day of the week. In other words, every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we gather here, we gather on Sunday as a celebration of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. John also records that it took place on the first day of the week in John chapter 20, verse 1. And then he mentions it again in verse 19. And when the disciples are behind closed doors and the Lord appears to them, it's, it's on that first day of the week. Meeting on the first day of the week became the standard for the church. In fact, it appears that Paul expected the church to meet on the first day of the week. 
when he wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And so Paul's encouraging a tithe here, and he says, when you guys come together on the first day of the week, put something aside. In the book of Revelation chapter 1, John writes, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. John set aside a day of worship. The first day of the week on the Lord's day when, when he was being exiled to the island of Patmos. And just like he, he had seen in the resurrected Christ on that Sunday, he sets that day aside. Revelation chapter 1 verses 17 and 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last. And the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. The Sabbath for the nation of Israel was celebrated because it was the day after the completion of creation. The Sabbath was merely a foreshadow of what was to come and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so when when we celebrate the Lord's Day, it's a testimony in our confidence of his resurrection. That the wrath of God was satisfied against the sin of mankind. That Christ fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. We're giving testimony that we have entered into Christ's righteousness. And it is a foreshadow of the eternal life that's to come. We meet on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. We meet on Sunday to show the world that we believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true. We meet on Sunday to not only show that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is true, but we meet on Sunday because we believe that He is coming again to take us home, to be with Him forever. We gather as a celebration and as an act of worship to the resurrected Jesus Christ. That's why we meet on Sunday. And that's why we will meet on Sunday, not just this church, but churches in general, until He comes again. So we see this empty tomb and we see why we worship on Sunday. But what I want to do this morning is I want to do something a little bit different than I typically do. I typically kind of go through the passage and break down different parts of it. This morning, I want us to look at fictitious explanations of the resurrection. Because I believe it's vital because there's a lot of explanations of the resurrection that kind of get thrown around. Before I get into these explanations of the resurrection, I want to point out two quick things. First notice in verse 1 that it is women who are first going to the tomb. Women were the most unlikely witnesses to the resurrection. Because women in this time, their testimonies weren't, weren't even valued. So you, women... His testimony in the court of law was not even valued in the culture of that day. And so if the gospel writers were trying to persuade people of some sort of hoax, if the resurrection were not true, and they want to explain or, or want to persuade people of a hoax, then choosing two women was not the way to do it. To cho choose two women as the first witnesses of the resurrection is not to, the way to persuade anybody. If you were going to make up some sort of concocted story about the most significant miracle the world has ever known, 
and hang the Christian faith on it, you would put forward what, what was questionable witnesses as evidence to the story. Second, look down at verses 11 through 15. Not at any time, the, not, not at any time did the guards dispute the body of Christ was missing as we look at those verses. Their only concern was to come up with some sort of explanation as to where the body went. No one could produce the body of Jesus. If they could, it would have immediately squashed any confidence in a resurrection. However, no one ever denies that the tomb was empty. Why? Because they couldn't. So they need to come up with a better explanation than a resurrection. And so for this reason, there have been all these fictitious attempts to explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ. To say, well, we got to explain it away somehow. And so I want to be as brief as possible, but I want to give you some, some fictitious theories of the resurrection. The first one I want to look at this morning is called the swoon theory. The swoon theory. This claim is that Jesus didn't really die on the cross, and it comes in a couple different forms. Um, the first form is this. Some say that the person who died on the cross looked like Jesus, but it was not him. In fact, this is the belief that the Muslims hold to. This is what Muhammad taught, and it's a stark contrast between Christianity and Islam. It really does not matter what Muhammad said six centuries after the death of Jesus Christ. There are those who saw it happen, who reported it right after it happened, that it was Jesus who died on the cross, and they saw Jesus die on the cross, and his history seems to give clear indication that Jesus died on a cross. So we can't, can't really say, well, this is what Muhammad says six centuries later who never even saw it, and therefore we got to take it as true. But that's, that's one theory. It wasn't really Jesus on the cross. However, the main theory is this, and one of the most widely circulated versions says that Jesus didn't actually die. It was, in fact, Jesus of Nazareth on the cross, but instead of dying, he was just hurt. Really Really, really bad. And so the theory is like this. While on the cross, Jesus fainted. He passed out. And because of this, the soldiers thought he was dead. And because the Passover was approaching, they quickly took him down before he was really dead. And they placed him in a tomb. And later on, Jesus came, came to his senses. And he managed to roll a huge stone away. And he managed to escape. And so this theory requires one to believe that Jesus went through six trials no sleep, a brutal scourging that killed many people, a crown of thorns shoved on his head, nails placed in his hands and his feet, after hours on the cross, had a spear stabbed into his side, was then wrapped in grave clothes, was placed in a tomb that was sealed with a huge rock over the entrance, and armed guards placed outside. Now Jesus supposedly regains consciousness, somehow wiggles out of these tomb clothes. Yet without disturbing them, because as we read the accounts of the resurrection, they're there nicely laid. Uses his ninja skills to move the rock, to get out of the tomb, to walk past the guards, and just went on his way. This is a most ridiculous theory. And it would be a miracle in itself. There's also another theory. It's called the wrong tomb theory. 
This theory says that disciples could not remember where the tomb was located. And the ladies were so stricken with the grief and shock over the death of Jesus that they went to the wrong tomb and mistakenly thought that Jesus had risen from the dead. From this time on, everyone else went to the wrong tomb. And so they just kept going to the wrong tomb over and over again, as well as they had to do, uh, uh, all they had to do was go next door because they just missed the tomb. There are many reasons why this is fictitious. First of all, Jewish leaders and Roman authorities did not want a group of people to be able to claim their leader had risen from the dead, which is why guards were posted there in the first place. If the tomb was not really empty, no one would have believed in the resurrection, and we are to believe that the guards were guarding the wrong tomb. Like, hey, go guard the wrong tomb. All someone would have had to do is identify the correct tomb. Remember, it belonged to Joseph of Arimathea because the Gospels record that he took the body off of the cross. He buried Jesus in his own private tomb. And so he could have easily said, oh, you got the wrong tomb. This is one over here, folks. And Christianity would have never gained ground. We stand on firm historical ground that the tomb was empty. There's another theory, the theft theory. This theory says the disciples stole the body of Jesus. Interestingly enough, this is the exact conspiracy theory that the Jewish authorities propagated from the beginning, according to our text. It's, it's an unlikely explanation for at least two reasons. First, we are supposed to think that the disciples somehow outmaneuvered a guard of highly skilled Roman soldiers. Remember, the disciples are later found hiding in an upper room. But they outmaneuvered these Roman soldiers. All the Jewish and Roman authorities were trying to keep anything from happening to the body of Christ. So it's very, very doubtful that the disciples would have been able to take the body. Secondly, the idea of the resurrection was not at all believed. The Pharisees of the day for sure denied any kind of resurrection. So why would the disciples steal a body to propagate something that no one was going to believe in the first place? The idea of a resurrection was not something the disciples were going to propagate if no one was going to believe it. Because many people felt that death was to be liberated from the body. And so no one would have wanted to come back into the body. The idea of a resurrection made no sense to many people, including the Jews. Why would someone want to enter back into the world where sickness and decay and death reside? If the disciples stole the body, it would have made zero sense to propagate a resurrection story. Plus, they were scattered. And when they did come together, they came together in hiding. I like what one person said. The likelihood of these timid, scared Galilean disciples stealing the body of Jesus out from under the noses of a guard of highly disciplined disciplined and skilled Roman soldiers while they all slept an offense that is punishable by death is absolutely ridiculous here's the deal if all we had was an empty tomb of Jesus then someone could cry foul if all we had was an empty tomb then something strange would be going on and you really perhaps could not make a legitimate case for a resurrection Someone could say, well, the body was stolen. However, if the disciples did steal the body and then they spread the claim that Jesus was alive, which is essential to a resurrection, and no one ever saw him alive, then it would be obvious they were lying. However, if people actually saw Jesus after they saw him die on a cross, and if the tomb really is empty, then there must be an answer, which is why we have another theory. Because people have to say, well, 
The tomb is empty. And so we got to come up with, a, with some sort of, of theory because people did see him. So we have another false theory, which is called the hallucination theory. This theory says all of Christ's post-resurrection appearances were really only supposed appearances because actually the people only had hallucinations. In this way, all post-resurrection appearances are dismissed. After all, the people of Jesus did not have scientific knowledge. The people of his day didn't have scientific knowledge. They don't have the knowledge that we have anyway. So they were more prone to believe in the supernatural. They were in such pain and grief over the death of Jesus that his followers believed that Jesus was still somehow guiding them and he was still somehow leading them. They therefore put visions of Jesus in their minds and they would even converse with him in their minds. And some say that the disciples may or may not have believed that Jesus was physically alive, but they believed he was spiritually alive. The belief after uh, this belief after being propagated so long morphed into the idea that Jesus rose from the grave physically. Some scholars have gone so far as to say the disciples hallucinated everything, including the whole story of Jesus. However, let's remember that overnight the disciples' worldview has shifted. Stop and think about it. There was no TV, no internet. No cool gizmo cell phones where you can do all this fancy stuff. No fast means of transportation. No publicized debates or discussion. Yet in a short amount of time, thousands upon thousands of people believe that Jesus rose from the grave. Thousands. It is one thing to make the claim that the disciples hallucinated or were somehow delusional. But how can we explain the influence that they had on thousands upon thousands of people and the dramatic change in their behavior within days of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Furthermore, the disciples were not the only ones that claimed that they had seen the risen Christ. There were hundreds of others. There was not one individual making a claim. There was many. Jesus ate with people, he drank with people, he talked with people. Hallucinations typically don't appear to hundreds of people and sit down and eat and drink and talk with them. This was a physical presence. It would be possible to perhaps fool uh, a few people into thinking that they had seen Jesus, but Paul makes it clear that Jesus appeared to over five hundred brothers at one time in first corinthians chapter 15 verse 6 so we're supposed to believe that 500 people had the exact same hallucination at the same time paul is saying go and ask them in first corinthians 15 he says hey go ask them they can verify it suppose i shared with you some outrageous story this morning something so outrageous there is no way that you'd believe it something like one time michael jordan was in a shooting slump and he called me up for help I helped him improve his game. And so he invited me to come and sit courtside at a Bulls game. What would you think of that? You'd say, yeah, right. Why wouldn't you believe my story? I mean, after all, I did coach some high school basketball. It seems outrageous. How could you discredit my story? How would you disprove my story? Well, if you could gain access to Michael Jordan, you would go and say, hey, 
Michael Jordan. Do you remember Josh Monda? And what would he say? He'd be like, I have no clue who that joker is. Who's that? You know what? These who lived in the first century, there were these people who lived in the first century who had access to those who claimed Jesus, claimed to see Jesus after his resurrection. They could go and speak to those people. They could talk to those people. They could speak to the apostles. They could find out if it was true or not. In fact, those who had seen the risen Christ were telling other people about it. And some are even losing their lives because of it. Proclaiming the resurrection of Christ was not a popular thing to do. Therefore, let me look at this in a more detailed way. Let's look at what's true. Why would someone lose their life for a lie? Why would someone lose their life for an unpopular lie? No one would have made this story up. Remember the disciples? They didn't even really believe it in the first place. They kept denying it all along. It wasn't what people expected. Here's the thing. Hallucinations don't occur because someone is uh, um, not expecting something. The reason hallucinations occur is because someone's anticipating. They're in expectation. But the historical record shows no such anticipation. And even after they were told of the resurrection, they were still prone to disbelief. So we have the swoon theory. We have the wrong tomb theory. We have the theft theory. We have the hallucination theory. They're all false. Which leaves one possible explanation. The resurrection is true. Amen. The resurrection is true. Given the fact that there are many false explanations for the resurrection, there has to be a true explanation. Jesus actually died on a cross and he actually rose from the grave. If you make the claim that the resurrection of Christ did not cause a radical shift in history, then we have to ask ourselves, what did? If it wasn't the resurrection, then what did? Because there's absolutely no denying that the shift even among secular scholars, that there was a radical shift in human history just over 2,000 years ago. And an entirely new religious movement and community was formed almost overnight. Immediately, hundreds of people came, uh, claimed Jesus rose from the grave, even when it meant that they could die for that claim. This movement was so great that by some estimates, it now makes up one-third of the world's population. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then the burden of proof is on the one who claims there is no resurrection. If you say, oh, there is no resurrection, the burden of proof is on you. You say, well, how so? Well, because plausibility is the criteria for proving. And because nothing in history can be established with 100% certainty. In other words, things that have happened in the past, we cannot say, hey, I'm 100% certain that that actually happened. We can say we're almost certain, well, I'm almost certain of this, but we can't be 100% certain or we can't have perfect certainty. And since we can't have perfect certainty for history, the question is, what is the most plausible explanation? What can be historically verified with the most certainty? That's the question. That's not discouraging. It's just the fact. All worldviews are based upon this. And it's why things require faith. So, what we do is we take the evidence. We say, well, I have this evidence. We come up with the most plausible solution. 
We have already made it clear that the previous theories have little certainty, and the most plausible and most certain explanation is that the resurrection is true. To deny that means the burden of proof is on the one who denies it, because they're denying the most plausible explanation. Now, some people will say, yeah, but you can't use the Bible to prove the Bible. That's a ridiculous claim anyway. Nonetheless, there is evidence outside the Bible. There are very few people that would dispute these facts. Facts. Jesus died by crucifixion. Fact. His followers believed he rose again and physically appeared to them. Fact. The lives of Jesus Christ's followers were changed as a result of seeing the risen Christ. All facts. All facts that can be verified. All facts that are proven. Think of even how the Apostle Paul's life was changed after seeing the resurrected Christ. This man who was hunting down and killing Christians became the strongest advocate for Christianity that the world has ever known. From the beginning of the resurrection until now, people have tried to explain it away. They, they try to say, well, the resurrection isn't true. But they fall short. And if the resurrection is true, which we have proved it is, we have proved it is the most plausible explanation. If Jesus died on the cross, if he actually rose from the grave, then there has to be implications. There has to be implications. If this is true, there has to be implications. So, what are those implications? What are the implications to your life? The reason people deny the resurrection is because if it is true, there are implications. Christianity rises and falls with the resurrection. If Christ came and died and rose again, then what does it mean for you? What does it mean for me? If he didn't rise from the dead, then there's nothing to worry about. Because there are no implications. If this isn't true, then there's no implication. If this isn't true, then I don't even know why you're here today, to be honest. If this isn't true, there's no implications to your life. Just go do whatever you want and live however you want because none of it is true. However, if he did die, then the implications are profound. If he died and rose again. Let's look at them real quick. First of all, if Jesus died and rose again, he has authority over your life. Well, actually, he has authority over life and death. Your life is number two. He has authority over life and death. This means that everything Jesus said about himself is true. That means that when he says all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, that is a true statement. And that means that he has authority over all things, including life and death. Jesus told his disciples that no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down on his own accord because he has the right to lay it down and he has the right to take it up again. There is no one on the face of this earth that has ever had the power to decide when they come into this world. No one. And no one certainly has the power to say they are coming back to life and then do it. Have you ever met someone who says, hey, I'm going to come back to life? And then they do it? I've not. Yet Jesus did. And he says, I have, the, I have the power. No one takes my life. I have the power to lay it down. I freely give it. And guess what? I'm going to rise again. And he does. He did it. If he did rise, then he has authority over life and death. He proves that he has authority over his life. This is when I come into existence. 
This is when I die, and this is when I rise again. Because he conquered death. Actually, number two is he has authority over sin and Satan. He has authority over life and death. He has authority over sin and Satan. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 makes it clear that the wages of sin is death, yet Jesus is the only one who ever died without sinning. If Jesus did not sin, then why did he die? If death is a result of sin, then why did Jesus die? Scripture makes it clear. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. He died in our place for our sin. After his death on the cross, he rose again, displaying his victory over death and sin. But the beauty of this is those who know Christ as Savior also have victory over sin and death. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 56 and 57. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus has authority over death and life. He has authority over sin and Satan. And if Jesus has all authority, we come to this unavoidable, logical conclusion that he has authority over us. He has authority over us. This means he is our Lord and our master. Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 13 said this. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is the Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What does it mean when we say he has authority over us? It means he rules your life. And whether you believe it or not, it does not matter. The sovereignty of Jesus to rule over our life is not contingent on your belief in it. You say, well, I don't approve. Again, it doesn't matter. The sky is blue whether you believe it or approve of it or not. And Jesus is Lord over you whether you approve of it or not. You know, often we'll hear people say, I've made Jesus Lord of my life. But the truth is, you don't make Jesus Lord of your life. He is Lord. The question isn't whether he's Lord. The question is whether you submit to his Lordship or not. Do you do it now? Or do you do it when it's too late? Now, not only does he rule our life, but he loves us deeply. Remember, God sent his son to pay the price for our sin. And the resurrection is validation that all Jesus said is true. And in the resurrection, we see the love of Christ for us because it is the display that our hope of salvation is true. Paul said that the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. That's love. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this 
that he lays down his life for his friends. We should rejoice in the love demonstrated on the cross and in the resurrection. He rules our life. He loves us deeply. And guess what? He will judge us eternally. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 5. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now perhaps you'd say, well, wait a second. I, I thought you said that he rules over us and he loves us, but now you're saying that he judges us, and that sounds really bad. However, you can be saved from Christ's eternal judgment if you receive him as Savior. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I think everybody wants their life to mean something. We all want to have a purpose in our life. And guess what? If the resurrection is true, which it is, then our lives do mean something. Because it means that there's more to life than this world. It means that because of the resurrection, the curse of sin will one day end. And there will be no more disease, no more famine, no more disaster, no more hurt, no more pain, no more heartache. And one day, those that have received Jesus will live with him forever. But the only way that holds true is if you trust him as your savior. Otherwise, you'll be judged. So I ask you this morning, do you believe in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe it? Scripture is clear that you have to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead to be saved. That's what it says in Romans 10, verse 9. For some reason, we tend to leave that out when we want to share with other people. We tend to leave out the resurrection of Jesus and say, uh, we don't tell them, hey, you got to believe in the resurrection in order to be saved. Listen, there's not a list of what you must do, but there's a truth that must be believed. And that truth is that Jesus rose from the dead. And if you don't believe in that truth and in, in, in that gospel, then you will enter judgment. That's what it says, that, that, that this is what you have to believe in. How long, however, not only is there a truth that you must believe in, but there's a confession that you must make. There are many people who believe in a resurrection, but the belief in the resurrection will not get you to heaven. But the denial of the res resurrection will send you to hell. You can believe in the resurrection and not be saved, but you can't deny it and be saved. Intellectual assent to the resurrection or the gospel does not save a soul. Scripture is clear that even the demons believe and they shake. Listen, Satan believed that Jesus is the son of God. That, that Jesus died on the cross. Satan believes that salvation is only through Jesus. Satan believes those things. But you know what? Satan will not be in heaven. Because he will never repent and surrender his life to Jesus Christ as Lord. Yes, so often in our evangelism, we leave this out. We do something like this. And maybe you've experienced this before. Will you pray this prayer with me? Someone says a prayer. And we confirm their intellectual assent to Jesus Christ. 
And we stress moralism. Oh, just be a better person. And we promise salvation and we promise heaven. And it's a lie. It's a lie. And you'll never hear me preach that at this church. Because it's a lie. Who knows how many people profess to be Christian because they said a prayer. And they think they're saved. And they're not saved. Because they got half of Romans 10 verse 9 right. They got half of it right. They do believe in a resurrection. They say, they say they're a Christian. But they've never, ever surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Because he does not rule their life. Does he rule your life? Does he rule your life? This is why we must ask, do you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, to his rule in your life? This is why scripture says that you must confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. It's not about saying the right words. It's not... It's not about saying, oh, well, I said the, the right words. I said the right combination of words. And a little fairy came and sprinkled little fairy dust on my head. And now I'm protected from hell. It doesn't work that way. Yes. Saying, yes, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. And I believe he rose from the grave. As my Savior and my life belongs to him as Lord. So this morning, you may have come thinking, oh, I'm just going to hear a cool little Easter sermon and feel good about myself. This morning, I want you to know eternity depends on your answer to the question, do you surrender your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Eternity. Depends on your answer to that question. Do I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and His rule in my life? And you're not going to hear say this prayer. You will hear if you're ready to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, I'd be glad to talk to you. You can hang around afterwards. I'll hang around as long as you need me to. You can come forward when we sing a song and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you later. And I'll set you down there and we'll talk later. Do you believe in the historical resurrection and have you surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord of your life? Two simple questions. This morning... You can do that if you haven't. You can surrender to his lordship. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to be standing down front. If you feel like you need to respond to that message, then, then you can come respond. You can come and pray. You can maybe say, I'm not, I'm not really preaching the gospel to people. I'm a Christian. I've been calling myself a Christian, but I'm not proclaiming the gospel. If you feel like you need to respond, I just want you to know I'll be down front. If not, that's fine. You can, you can respond in your pew if you feel like you need to pray. Or if you just want to wait till later and grab me, we can do that. Let's go ahead and close with prayer, and then I'll give you an opportunity to respond. Amen.